The following sermon is from New Life Baptist Church, where we exist to see lives transformed by the gospel as we make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at newlifeba.org. You you may have seen in our uh, program that uh, it says we will be going through James 1, verses 2 through 8. That was a bit ambitious on my part. Uh, We're going to get through three whole verses this morning, church. Uh, We're going to go through James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. But but it's such a heavy, such a profound and important subject within the Christian life, that of suffering, that I didn't want us just to rush through it. Well, in the Gillum household right now, we are in the tooth-losing season of life. As Ruby, she's already lost a couple, and she's about to lose another tooth. And Noah's trying to wiggle them out. You know, he's trying to keep up with his sister and, uh, he's, and, and his other friends in class. And so he's trying to hasten the day of, uh, of losing his teeth as well. But, but Ruby, she, she wants to lose the tooth, but she doesn't want it pulled out. Because of the pain that will be involved in that process. Now, she wants something, but she doesn't want to endure what's required to do it. And I, I think, while a silly illustration, I think that is kind of the thinking that is true for some, maybe many Christians today. We, we want to grow in greater Christ-likeness. We want to grow in godliness. But we don't want to encounter or to endure the pain that is necessary for that formation. I, I fear maybe we've bought a little too much into the Freudian way of living. That life is all about maximizing pleasure and it's about minimizing pain. And, and so with that being said, as Christians, how should we respond to the pain and to the trials, to the sufferings of this lifetime? How are we to faithfully endure suffering? Well, our passage this, in our passage this morning, James shows us the process and the product of suffering well in the Christian life. If you have God's word with me, if you would turn with me to James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And in honor of God's word, would you, if you're able, would you stand with me as we read his word? The word of God says this to you this morning church count it all joy my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing this is the word of the lord thanks Thanks be to god let's pray father we pray that you do a great work this morning lord that you would renew our minds That you would enliven our hearts. That you would change us this morning. And then that you would use us this upcoming week to advance your kingdom. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Notice with me in verse 2, what does James say at first? He says what? Count it all joy. Now, that's not a suggestion or an idea. That's a command. It's an imperative in the text. Now, if you were to ask someone, right, what is your natural response to suffering in life? What would it be, right? Naturally, we are prone 
to maybe become depressed, to become dejected, to detach from reality, right? To, to go after various objects of escapism, to remove ourselves from our suffering. Maybe, maybe to despise God, to despise other people, right? Naturally speaking, the last thing on the list when we encounter trials and sufferings is what? Joy, right? And so that's why God through James commands it here. Count it all joy or consider it all joy. Now, the commands of God, again, church, they are not optional or preferential. You don't get to pick and choose. You're not at the buffet line getting to pick and choose which commands you want to obey in life. No, they are binding on the Christian. Because do you remember the sermon from last week? What did we talk about? Who are we as the people of God? We are of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. A doulos, a bondservant, a slave. Now, slaves don't get to pick and choose when they adhere to their master's commands, do they? So through the Lord James, or through James, the Lord gives us a peculiar command. A command that is antithetical to everything natural within us. And that is, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That word joy is where we get the Many girl, uh, many, not, it's not as common of a name now, but used to be a common name. It's the name Kara, the girl named Kara. That's where we get that word from. It, It describes a unique fullness of joy that the Lord graciously provides to his children when they endure sufferings in this lifetime. So notice with me, though, and don't miss this. Who is the one who commands the joy? What's the Lord? But who's the one who also gives us the joy? It's the Lord. The Lord will never command what he does not supply, church. The Lord will never command what he does not supply. Notice with me those two words, all joy. So question, how can we consider the sufferings of this present lifetime all joy? Right On the surface, this seems like just like pie in the sky command to da- detach from true experience, right? It, it sounds nice, but this just isn't grounded in reality. But Jesus has told us that he would send us the helper. He would send us the comforter. He would send us the Holy Spirit to reside within us as his people. Jesus said this peace I leave with you my peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That's why Paul would say in Romans 15, he says this, May the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So listen, church, because the Holy Spirit will never leave us nor forsake us, because he is our seal of redemption, Ephesians says, We can, therefore, rejoice in the Lord always. And therefore, we can consider it all joy when we encounter various trials in life. You might be asking, okay, how do I do that, though? We'll put a bookmark in that question. We'll get to it at the end of the sermon. Okay, so we are to count it all joy, my brothers, if we meet trials of various kinds, right? Ah, are you listening? No, maybe not. James doesn't say if you meet trials of various kinds. He says what, church? When. When you meet trials of various kinds. It's been said before that there are three groups of people in the world. Those who are suffering, 
those who have just suffered and those who are about to suffer in life. So listen, although we have been forgiven of our sins and though we are children of the living God and though we've been given the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, it does not make us immune from suffering in this lifetime. In fact, to be a child of God opens us up for, opens us up for even more suffering during this life. And I, I've mentioned it before and I don't mean I don't do this to take pot shots at all, but but there are many in Christianity and many here in Tulsa who are buying into this false teaching called the prosperity gospel, or as I like to call it, the prosperity heresy. The prosperity heresy teaches that God wants to make his children healthy and wealthy in this lifetime. And so if you're not experiencing one of these two things, then something must be wrong with your faith because God's favor isn't resting on you. In essence, this false teaching, it teaches that you just need more faith so you can use God to get more of this world. The prosperity heresy, make no doubt about it, it is wicked and idolatrous. Because as our passage this morning teaches, the strength of your faith, is it is not measured in how many material possessions you have or the health of your body in this lifetime. No, the strength of your faith, it is measured in your devotion to the Lord when your health and your wealth is taken away. So should we pray for health and healing? Yes, we should. James 5 commands us to do so, and Lord willing, and whenever we get there in James 5, uh, we will talk about that. But it is idolatrous for us to think that God's will for your life is to be physically healthy and materially wealthy. And just maybe a question to see, okay, is this good theology or is this bad theology? Just ask the question, does this work for our impoverished brothers and sisters all around the world? For our brothers and sisters living in Afghanistan on pennies a day right now, does this theology work for them? No, God's will for your life, it is that you are to be spiritually holy, not physically healthy, that you be rich in Christ not rich in the things of this world. If your treasure is stored up on this earth, you will live for this world. But if your treasure is stored up in heaven, you will live for all all eternity. Maybe a good question for us to ask then is, why do Christians suffer? Why do Christians suffer? There are two key reasons, I think, that Christians suffer. And that is because of the fall, and that is because of our faith. You remember right before the fall of creation in Genesis chapter 1, before sin entered into the world, the earth was a place of perfect, sublime, and infinite joy. Where Adam and Eve enjoyed walking with God and walking throughout God's perfect creation. But then, as you know, what happened, church? Due to Adam's spiritual passivity, due to his failure to spiritually lead his wife Eve, Eve then rebelled against the Lord, disobeyed God's command, and as a result, sin entered into the world, and it fractured everything. Genesis 3.14-15 says that sin fractured the natural world. Genesis 3.16 says that sin fractured our bodies and our relationships. Genesis 3.17-19 says that sin has now fractured our work and our relation to creation. Genesis 3.19 says that sin has now given us an end date on life. 
death entered into the world. And worst of all, Genesis 3 verses 23 through 24 says that sin has severed our relationship with God. So now, even if you are a Christian, even if Christ has redeemed you, and even if he has reconciled your relationship with God through his work on the cross, even so, we still live in the fracturing wake of the fall. We still live in a world that is cursed by sin, and therefore we still live in a world that abounds with suffering. So why do Christians suffer? We suffer A, like everyone else in the world, because of the fall. We're not immune from its effect in our world. But also scripture teaches us that as Christians we suffer not just because of the fall, but also we suffer because of our faith. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. Paul would write in the book of Philippians from a prison cell. He says this when he was unjustly imprisoned. He says this, he writes this, For it has been granted to you, Christians, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him. We want, we want, you're to believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus. He says it's been granted that not only should you believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And he would write to his son in the faith, Timothy. He says this, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life, but what? Will be persecuted. We don't have time to go through all the scriptural references talking about the unique sufferings of the Christian life. But in 1 Peter, the apostle Peter talks about how Christians should expect to suffer for righteousness sake. You might jot down 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 12 through 19, especially. Who in here not a Christian is ready to be a Christian now, Right? And so listen, because the Lord was merciful with the founding of our nation being built upon Judeo-Christian worldview and ethics, and because we have the protections of the First Amendment, we have largely been insulated from this kind of persecution compared to our brothers and sisters around the world. But just in case you don't think it's actually happening, here are just a few examples of today what's happening in our world. In 2020, Pastor Anushavan Avedin He's 61 years old now, wife and two kids. He was arrested. He was harshly interrogated and sentenced to church 20 years inside of Iran's most notorious prison, all for leading a house church and for proclaiming the gospel. Gabriela Gabriela lives in a rural village in Osaka, Mexico, where members of her community adhere to what's, it's a blend between paganism and Roman Catholicism, But regardless, it's opposed to the true gospel. And so because of her boldness in sharing the gospel, she has been beaten and estimated 40 times and hospitalized on several occasions. But despite this opposition, she continues to go and to share the gospel with her neighbors. You might remember the video in 2015 of the beheading of 21 Egyptian Christians by ISIS who who were martyred for the sake of Christ. And on July 1st, 2015, four masked gunmen charged into Mohammed Yusuf's bot's home, pushed his wife aside, and demanded to talk to Yusuf. And as he stepped forward, the gunmen escorted the 43-year-old father of three outside of his home in Kashmir, India, and shot him seven times, killing him. 
Before his death, Yusuf, he discussed the Islamist effort to stop the spread of Christianity in that region. Yet despite the dangers, Yusuf continued to boldly share the gospel. Those who worked with him described him as a fearless, bold, and passionate believer who would not be quiet about the Lord Jesus Christ. His overall goal in life, he said, was that Kashmir would come to know Christ. He said this, we are praying that there will be open worship of the Lord here. This is our main burden in our hearts. My prayer is that when I see the stars, like every evening, I want to see that many believers in Kashmir Valley. His final, some of his final words were, God, give us power in victory in Kashmir. So listen, church, why, why do I share that with you? This kind of suffering, it is not uncommon within Christianity to be persecuted for righteousness sake. It may be uncommon to us here in America, but it's not uncommon throughout church history. So much so that one of the early church fathers named Tertullian, he said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And many church historians have noted that the presence of persecution, not the absence of it, but the presence of persecution has been the main catalyst for growth for the church throughout its two millennia. Listen, church, while it hasn't been the norm for us yet, it's coming. It's coming in increasing frequency and in increasing intensity. Mark it down. A public faith will be a persecuted faith. Because the darkness, Jesus says, hates the light. So the question is, as the starkness between light and darkness becomes even more evident in our world, in our culture today, Will we seek out comfort and forsake Christ? Or will we follow Christ no matter the cost? And so if you're committed to living out your faith publicly, if you're committed to a visibly godly life in a vocal proclamation of the gospel, then James says this to you this morning. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He goes on to say in verse 3, because you know that the testing, maybe even a more helpful translation is the proving of your faith. It produces steadfastness within you. How many of you have read and know about the the parable Jesus gave, the the parable of the sower? Or maybe what's better known, uh, better called the parable of the soils. In this parable, Jesus says, right, a sower went out to the field to sow and he indiscriminately threw the seed on the ground. He said some of the seed that fell along the path, some in rocky soil, some among the thorns. And then there was a fourth group of seed that fell in good soil. He goes on to say that the, the, the seed that was thrown on the path, it was snatched up by the birds instantly. The, 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 the seed that was thrown in the rocky road, it immediately had sprung up. But then, because it had no depth of soil, when the sun rose, it was scorched and weathered away. And he goes on to say that the, the seed that was sown among the thorns, what happened to it? Well, it grew up with the thorns. And ultimately, the thorns choked out the life of the plant. And Jesus ends the parable by saying that the seed that fell on good soil, it produced 60, 30, 60, 100 fold. In explaining this, he's, Jesus says this, that these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. But they have no root in themselves. And though they endure for a little while, when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. When times get hard, they go running. 
Jesus also explains the seed that fell among the thorns by saying, There are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things, they enter in and they choke the word and it proves unfruitful. And he ends by saying that the seed sown on good soil, they're the ones who hear and they produce fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. So listen, church, how you respond to suffering and to persecution proves which soil your seed of faith is in. When difficulties, when trials, when persecution, when suffering comes, will you fall away? Will you be enticed away by the cares of this world and seek out a life of comfort and ease? Will you pursue the maximizing of pleasure and the minimizing of pain? Or will you count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds? But notice also with me in verse 3. Notice with me. Who is the one doing the testing? Who is the one proctoring the exam, as it were? What's the Lord, right? And so this means that he is absolutely sovereign over your suffering, church. Therefore, we can rest in the promise of Romans 8, 28, that God will not permit, nor will he allow any suffering that does not yield within you a greater and a more lasting good for your life. Let me say that again, church. God will not permit, nor will he allow any suffering that does not yield you a greater and more lasting good in your life. Again, that's easy to say, but a whole lot, a whole other thing to live that out, right? But this is where our theology meets real life. When suffering happens, what will we do? Will we curse God or will we bless him? Will we become bitter at God or will we trust him? Will we lose faith in God or or will the roots of our faith grow more deeply in him? How will we respond? If there was a better way. What James is saying here is if there was a better way to form you more into the image of Jesus then he would have done it another way. God ordains the suffering and the trials of our life to prove the genuineness of our faith and to grow us more into the image of Christ. Or as James would say, to deepen within us a steadfast, a resolute, a seasoned, and an unwavering godly character. Your suffering is not purposeless. It's not pointless. There is a purpose God is working in your suffering. Finally, verse four, James continues on. He says that he says, let steadfast have its full effect that you may be perfect, lacking in nothing. Notice that word perfect, right? It's not a word that leads that's talking about moral perfection. It's the same word used in verse three that was translated as full. It's referring more to a maturing effect that suffering has on the Christian rather than a moral transformation effect. So, so what does that mean? It means we don't seek out suffering to make us more perfect. We, we don't seek out suffering to try and grow in sanctification. We don't seek it out for suffering's sake. However, when suffering inevitably does come, and it will, you know that all too well. When it does come, we endure it and we embrace it because we know God's purpose in our suffering is to form us and to mature us into greater godly character. That word perfect here also, it's the word telos, which describes the end goal and the ultimate purpose for something in life. Why it exists. 
And that word complete, it conveys a wholeness. Something that has all of its parts together. So I mentioned earlier in the Gillum household, we are in the tooth losing season, but we're also in the Lego building season. However, the problem is, I've tried to remedy it, and uh, we still have this problem. The problem is, we'll open up the packages, and about seven to nine minutes later, I'll hear someone uh, crying, Daddy, I lost the pieces, right? And no matter what, like, we, okay, buddy, put it in this container. Don't lose it. Ten minutes later, where'd the piece go? Yeah, and so we have a full meltdown until we find it, and then we're, then we're good to go again, right? But, but why do I share that? This word complete, it conveys a wholeness that, that not one of the pieces is lost. It, it, all the pieces are working together to produce an end product. So what James is saying here is that we won't reach the end goal, the ultimate purposes God has for our lives apart from suffering. Suffering, it is painful, right? It's not a part of God's original design for creation. But now suffering, it is a redemptive necessity in our fallen world. Because its purpose is to burn away the dross of this world and to refine us in our faith in Jesus Christ. The wholeness of godly character, it cannot be formed within you apart from the trials of this life. Because it's in our trials, church, that our faith is proven, it's tested, it's displayed, and it's demonstrated. James ends verse 4 by saying that we may be lacking in nothing. Now, all of us, as we've gone through various sufferings, it does not feel like we're lacking in nothing when we get to the end, right? This is a paradoxical statement, isn't it? Because what happens during suffering, when we suffer, it means someone or something we value and love is taken away from us. So how could it be at the end of our suffering that we are found lacking in nothing? If anything, it would seem at the end of it that we're lacking more than when we first started. But this is the key. For the true Christian... When everything is stripped away from you and all you have is Jesus, it is then that you understand and you feel and you embrace more deeply this truth that Jesus is all you need. So how can you be lacking in nothing through your suffering? How can you be lacking in nothing when all that is taken from you? Because it is through suffering that you, be, that you more deeply experience the fullness of Christ. So I'll end our time this morning by asking and answering this question. And that is, as Christians, how should we suffer well? I want to give you five, quickly give you five Ps that will help you the next time you're facing trials in life. So in your suffering, I want to encourage you to remember first God's providence. To remember second God's purpose. To remember third God's plan. To remember fourth God's presence. And to remember, fifthly, to praise. Remember God's providence, his purpose, his plan, his presence, and to praise him no matter what. First, remember God's providence. What, what, what is, maybe that word's thrown around a lot, but what is the providence of God? It's his active, his almighty, and his everywhere presence and power that governs every single situation in life. 
So much so that Jesus says not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from God's knowing. So that means that rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, and all things. They come to us not by chance or by good luck, but they come to us both good and ill by, the, by God's fatherly hand. And so in your suffering, remember God's providence. That your suffering, it didn't catch God by surprise. And it isn't a deviation from his purpose and plan for your life. No, he is actively governing your situation. And he's orchestrating, Romans 8.28 says, all things together for your ultimate good. Leads us to the second P, and that is remember God's purpose. Listen, God never wastes anything. He will use your suffering for your greatest good and for his highest glory. And that is to form you more into the image of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we are to remember God's plan, his eternal plan for you. Romans 8, 18, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us one day. And so, church, in light of what is ahead of us, The best is yet to come. In light of heaven that awaits us, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us, church, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Paul would go on to say the things that are seen, they're transient. They they come and they go. But the things that are unseen, they are eternal. The sufferings of this lifetime, they are meant to produce within us a hunger and a longing for heaven. For that day when sin will be no more. And that day when you will see the face of your Savior. Robert Murray McShane, a pastor of old, he once said, Live for eternity. A few more days and our journey is done. And he would go on to say, Oh, to be like Jesus and to be with him for all eternity. And it leads us to our fourth point, and that is to remember God's presence. Or, yeah, to remember God's presence. If you've read through the Gospels, you'll notice that Jesus, he encountered a lot of people who were suffering, right? But how did Jesus respond to those who were suffering? What did he do? He went to them, didn't he? And he cared for them. And so if you are suffering right now, and if you are his, why do you think his response to you would be any different? Jesus promises to walk alongside you in your pain, to care for you, and to provide what you need. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. One of my favorite promises to claim when going through difficult times, it's Psalm 34, 17 through 19. You might want to jot this down and remember it. It says, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Listen, following Jesus, it doesn't mean a life of ease, of comfort. No, it means a life of afflictions and troubles. But it says this, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Take God at his word and plead the promises of God through prayer. And remember, the one who walks with you through your suffering, he is the same one who has gone before you and who has suffered to the fullest extent possible for your sake.
The book of Hebrews, it says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, he, Jesus, should make the founder of their faith perfect through suffering. It goes on to say, We don't have a high priest, church, who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tested as we are yet without sin. He knows. He knows your suffering. Because he lived a life of suffering and ultimately suffered the punishment and the wrath of God on the cross for your sake and for your salvation. He knows. Finally, I want to encourage you, when you are suffering, remember to praise. One of the most powerful testimonies to the legitimacy of a person's faith is their praising God through their pain. And so I want to encourage you, in your sorrow, praise Or as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 6, to be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Because true joy is not found in the absence of sadness. It's found in the heart that praises the goodness of God even in the pain. So I'll end with a hymn, a beautiful hymn called Be Still My Soul. It says this, Be still my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide his providence. In every change, he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, thy best, thy heavenly friend, through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. And continues on to say, Be still, my soul, when dearest friends depart, and all is darkened in the veil of tears. Then shalt thou better know his love, his heart, who comes to soothe thy sorrow. And thy fears. Be still, my soul. Thy Jesus can repay from his old, from his own fullness, all that he takes away. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you have any questions or if we can serve you in any way, please connect with us at newlifeba.org.